Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Like Joanna said, my name is Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor, and we are glad that you have joined us today, Palm Sunday, where we are gathered with Christians all across the world as we um, remember Jesus' sacrifice, his entrance into Jerusalem during that final week and then leading up to the cross, and then obviously what we celebrate next Sunday, which is Easter Sunday. Um, We are continuing this message series, Essential Jesus, as we lead up to Easter, and we're taking a look at this because we really kind of want to answer the question, if you're going to believe in Jesus, if you're going to make a decision to follow him, kind of what are the things that you need to know about him? So we started this last week, we looked at who he is, we examined some of the claims and also the evidence for his life so that we can come to a conclusion and uh, make a decision on do we believe that he is who he claimed to be. And this Friday, Good Friday, we're going to be taking a look at his, his mission. Why did he come? What was it that he sought to accomplish in coming? And then next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're going to be taking a look at his legacy, and we're going to see how his life has impact on each one of our individual lives. I can tell you it's going to be a great Sunday to bring people to. If you want people in your life to hear a message of hope, I'd really encourage you to invite them next Sunday as we take a look at Jesus' legacy and discuss how he can impact our individual lives. Now, as part of this series today, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the message of Jesus. What was it that he taught? And we're looking at this because if you kind of start to think about what he taught and the impacts that this has had on the world, you realize that his impact can be seen in more ways than we're aware of. I mean, for us, you know, we're fortunate to live within about 30 minutes of the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. And um, if you're a parent of young children like I am, I have an 18-month-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old, there are times where we're at Disneyland and we realize that they got the marketing wrong. And it moves from the happiest place on earth to we've got to get out of here and we've got to get out of here quick. You take one kid, I'll take the other kid, I'll meet you on the other side, but we're getting out of here. But um, my three, three-year-old daughter, uh, Olivia, she loves Disneyland. Yeah, she'll talk about it. And from this picture, you can't see how much she loves it because every time she gets around the princesses, she gets really shy, which is really cute. But um, she loves it. She just loves going. And there's one ride in particular that really has an impact on her. And I don't know if it's the ride as much as the song that plays through the entire ride. And I'm not going to sing it, (laughs) but you guys know what it is. Small World. That's what I'm talking about. I've heard that song so many times. Actually, this week we were driving somewhere and the kids didn't want to be in the van. And so I was like, oh, you know, Olivia, sing a song. And that's the song she sang. And I was just like, oh, it backfired. Don't sing. Don't sing. Um, That ride, though, Small World, it portrays an interesting vision of humanity. What you have throughout the ride as you go through it, not only is there the song, but then you have images of boys and girls, every ethnicity, every race, every socioeconomic class coming together, being united, being at one, being at peace with one another. You see everyone coming together and being at peace. And and even the song kind of conveys this message of we're more alike than not. And a question that we need to ask is where before Jesus did a vision like this exist for the world? I mean, yeah, you had people who set out to conquer the world, and they wanted to unite everybody by everyone was subject to them in some kingdom. And there were people that wanted to rule the whole world. But where before Jesus do you find this movement that sought to include every human being, regardless of social status, wealth, race, in order for them to be loved and transformed? You just, you don't, you don't find this anywhere throughout history. The reason is, the reason that you find this originate with Jesus is because this whole idea of us being at peace with one another, us being united, no one being 
excluded, but this inclusive family movement. The reason you find this with Jesus is because this was his idea. He's the one who originated this. In this movement, this is actually his vision for the church, for what we get to gather and do today and be a part of with our activities. This is what it says about the church in Colossians 3.11. This captures Jesus' vision. It says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, just listed all the different groups that people could fall into, all the different reasons that people could divide or be in conflict with one another. He lists them out, and then he says, but Christ, Jesus, is all and is in all. Now, this isn't to say that the small world ride at Disneyland wouldn't exist if Jesus hadn't showed up on earth, but it's just a historical reality that this idea of everybody being together and being part of this kind of inclusive family, united and at peace, this idea originated with him. I mean, this is just a historical fact. And you start to consider this, and you start to think about all the ways that he has shaped our culture that we're even unaware of. We don't even think about this stuff. When you start to see these, it causes you to pause and examine him more closely. So that's what we're doing. We're taking a closer look at Jesus. And today... We're going to dive into this message, this message where in this message he conveyed a vision that started a movement that shows up all around us because of what he said. Now, if you go back and you study Jesus' message, you study what he said and what he taught, what you realize is his message is a message of love. So the first thing, if you're following along in your message outline, this is the first blank. His message is a message of love. It's really what it boils down to. What you find is Jesus claims that he came because of love. One of the most common verses in the Bible is John 3.16. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came because of love. He came to accomplish something because of love. Jesus, when asked the question of what, what should we focus on, what's the priority of life, what's the most important thing that we should do, what's Jesus' answer? He says, Love God. Put God first with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Then he says right after that, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just like you take care of yourself, just like you feed yourself, just like, just like you think about your needs, turn and do the same thing for the person next to you. Love God and love others. That's, that's the priority. He says, that's what I want you to focus on. Jesus even went so far in this message of love to where no one was excluded. You know, the common idea was you love your friends, but you hate your enemies. And then Jesus kind of flips it on his head, and he says, I tell you, love your enemies. A shocking idea. This message of love excluded nobody. And then Jesus said that the identifying mark of people who follow him would be love. He says in John 13, he says, by this, everyone will know that you're my follower. If you love, that'll be the identifier. People will be able to look at you and see your life and say, oh, they love. They must follow Jesus. He, you add it up and you realize his message is a message of love. But with all this talk about love, it's worth clarifying the meaning. Because when we use the word love, there's a lot of different images that come to mind. I mean, just in, in, your, in your head right now, there's probably different images that come to mind when we use the word love. And the most common one is we associate love with a good feeling. This is why a teaching like love your neighbor is so bizarre. How could you ever, or love your enemy is so bizarre, how could you ever have a positive feeling about somebody you're in conflict with? I mean, we hear that and we just think, that's impossible. Because when we talk about love, we're generally talking about things that we feel good about. I mean, my three-year-old daughter, she loves 
the small world ride at Disneyland. I don't feel the same way about it that she does. And even when we talk about relationships, you know, maybe it's marriage or dating, some kind of romantic relationship. What do we say? We say we fell in love. It's almost like we were walking around and somebody set out a kiddie pool in front of us and we didn't see it. And then all of a sudden we just tripped and we fell into it. And then we realized, oh, this, this feels really good in here. I'm just going to stay in here for a little while. But then what happens? What, what do we say when that goes away? I fell out of love. Like somebody walked up and picked up the pool and flipped it over. Or they removed the drain plug and that, that good feeling substance that was in that pool just suddenly went away. When you actually, when you, when you really step back and you consider our use of the word love, what you realize is when we convey this image, we're giving the impression that love is not really a choice. It's just kind of this strong, positive emotion that comes and we've got it and we like it and it's, it's the stuff that makes us happy and the stuff that we appreciate and the stuff that makes us joyful and we love that stuff. But then all of a sudden, this strong, positive emotion can all of a sudden just leave. So it's not really our decision. It's not based on the life that we're focused on. It's not, it's not our choice. We, we really don't have a lot of control just based on how we use the word. And one of the things we've got to realize, there's nothing wrong with having good positive feelings. But when Jesus taught on love, he's talking about something more than feelings. He, he actually is talking about something that you can choose. He's saying, hey, you actually have control. So it's not of your control. It just kind of comes and goes like, you know, like the weather, but you, know, you, you have a choice in the matter. This is your decision. And one of the things that's really helpful for us is not only does Jesus, he uses a specific word when he talks about love. He uses the Greek word agape, which is a love of, of choice, of, a love of will. But another thing that Jesus does, he doesn't just use this word and we can go back and look at the meaning. Jesus gives us a ton of examples to look at, examples that he, he, he really uses his life as a case study. He says, okay, you really want to know what love is, and then he goes and he does something. So his whole life, what he's doing is he's saying, okay, in this situation, this is what love looks like. When interacting with this person, this is what love does. When you're, when you're thinking about this happening, this is how love thinks about that. And so over and over again with his life, he is giving us a, a picture that we can look at, a living illustration of if you want to know what love really is, look at me. Look at what I've done. He does this over and over and over again. There's, there's multiple ways that he does this. Actually, the most obvious one is what we're going to be celebrating on Good Friday, which is him giving his life on the cross to forgive our sins. And we're going to come, and on Good Friday at that service, we're going to have this Friday evening. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, in addition to singing songs of worship and taking communion together, we're going to explore how him giving his life for us him offering us forgiveness, that is really the greatest act of love. Now, since we're already planning to do that on Friday, which I'd encourage you to come to that, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at another way that Jesus lives out love, another example where he, through his own life, his own actions with the, own, the people that surrounded him, he showed us, gave us a very vivid example of this is what it means to love. And the example we're going to look at is found in John chapter 13. Now, this example I'm getting ready to read it takes place in the middle of Holy Week. Holy Week is, you know, Palm Sunday is today, Easter is next Sunday. This is referred to as Holy Week. It takes place in about the middle of the week. Jesus gathers his followers together and he shares a meal with them, something we refer to as the Last Supper. And so we're going to pick this story up, and this is what it says in John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. 
Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. He knew that he was getting ready to die and then ascend. And this is what it says. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this verse, when it says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end, this is really the heading for what's getting ready to happen. So after this, everything that follows, actually, you could read all the way, I would encourage you to read 13 through 17. It's a great lead up to Jesus going to the cross. But this statement, having loved his own, he loved them to the end, verses, chapters 13 through 17 really explains how he loved them to the end. So that's what we're getting ready to see in this example. And the example we're going to see is you show love by serving. This is the second blank if you're following along. You show love by serving. This is what Jesus is getting ready to show us. His message is a message of love, and when it comes to love, one of the ways that you do that is you, you serve. This is what he lived out. John chapter 13, verse 2, right after it says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. It says, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So what are some observations we can make from this passage about how to show love? The first one is love, when it comes to serving, you serve by meeting practical needs. It's the first thing you see Jesus do. He, he meets a practical need that his followers had. And this is interesting. So he washes their feet. In our day and time, you know, we've got closed-toed shoes on. We probably wear socks. You know, we take regular showers. We've got carpeted floors. In your home, you have carpet or hardwood or tile. When we travel... We travel, you know, I drove here in my car today. Some of you maybe rode your bike if you lived close enough, or I know some of you maybe even walked here today if you lived close enough. But even when we're doing that, we're doing that on paved sidewalks or walking along a a paved path. It wasn't like that in Jesus' day. In Jesus' time, they had these dirty, dusty roads, and they didn't have these elaborate sewer systems like we have today. So the road wasn't clean. It was very, very dirty. And then they had these shoes. Unlike our shoes, it was just a, it was just a, a thin piece of leather with a few strings tied around it. That's what their sandals were. So if our feet are kind of gross by the end of the day, you can imagine what their feet would be like. And then you add to that the fact that when they would eat, it wasn't like when we have a meal. I mean, when we have a meal, we're sitting at some table, and our feet are kind of nicely removed from our food. They're not near our food. But for them... They're probably, they're probably crouching or, you know, maybe they, they cross their legs to sit down or kind of they're leaning to the side. What that means is your feet are either close to your food or they're close to the person next to you's food. That's gross. Even with our clean feet, that's gross. But just in their day, I mean, it just takes it up a notch. And it's like, this, this is not appetizing. So what was common is they would have their feet washed. This was just a basic thing that needed to happen. It was a basic need. Everyone there knew that it needed to happen. Everyone there knew that it hadn't been done. So who does it? Jesus does it. He gets up from the table. He fills a bowl with water. He gets a rag. And he starts meeting a basic need that his followers had. It needed to happen. So Jesus got up and he did it. And it wasn't just any job that he did. It was actually in this custom, in this period of time, If a Jewish master had a Jewish servant, they couldn't require that servant to wash feet. It had to be a servant from a different group of people because this was a lowly degrading task. 
I mean, nobody wanted to be the one that was chosen to do this one. And this was like, this was like you, you really had to be the low man on the totem pole to do this. That's why when Jesus does this, the, you know, we, we read this and we're like, oh, that's nice. This was shocking. Peter, you read, you read this a little bit further, once you see is Peter, the most outspoken disciple, he objects. He's like, no way am I going to let you clean my feet. You know, you're God. We believe that you're the, the one that's going to save us. There's no way I'm going to let you do this. And then Jesus kind of lovingly corrects Peter and puts him in his place, and then he goes forward with washing his feet. What he does is he gives us such a vivid example, a picture of if you really want to know what love is, love serves. Love meets a practical need. He could have, at the meal, he could have used flowery language and with his words tried to convey, guys, I really care about you. You've been my followers. You're the one that's going to take the church and you're going to lead it forward. And with his words, like, like, I just want you to understand how serious I am about my concern and my care for you. He could have done that. He could have gotten all emotional and he could have started weeping and just like, you know, I love you, man. You know, he could have done that. But what does he do? Instead of like flowery words and this strong display of emotion, because he loves them, he gets up and he meets their need. It's the exact same thing with us. When it comes to love, this is what love does. It serves by meeting needs. And if you don't know where to start, I, I think the best place to start is just asking the question, hey, how can I help? Just taking the posture of I'm entering a situation, I'm surrounded by people, how can I help? How can I benefit you? I might not even be aware of what the practical needs are, but are there ways that I can serve? Are there ways that I can show you how much I care about you by taking action, just like Jesus did? I've got a good friend, and um, he was a shift lead at a busy coffee shop. And the coffee shop he worked at, it had a lot of uh, foot traffic throughout the day. And by the end of the day, the bathroom was the job nobody else wanted when it came to closing up. And because of his shift, he usually was kind of in charge of shutting down the coffee shop at the end of the night. And nobody wanted to clean the bathroom. So what he did is, because he kind of had a position of authority and he could decide who did what job, he would divvy up all the different responsibilities, and then he was the one that said, and then I'll go clean the bathroom. So you guys take care of this, that, and the other. And the reason that he did that is because he really wanted the people working with him to know how much he cared about them. So he took an example from Jesus' life and said, hey, if Jesus is willing to get up and do the job of washing feet, then I'll be willing to be the one that goes in and does the job that nobody else wants to do. I'll actually volunteer for it. What I've noticed about this guy over time, I've known this guy for a long time now, what I've noticed about him is people don't question if he cares about them. People know that he loves them. And the reason they know it is because he's consistently serving. And he's over and over again, he's asking the question, how can I help? What are the needs? How can I meet those needs? And because he's doing that, and he's not just saying, hey, I, you know, I care about you, I value you, I really want to benefit you, he actually makes it real with action. People aren't questioning it. So for us, the challenge of Jesus when it comes to meeting practical needs is we just got to start by asking the question, how can I help? And then we've got to take action. Another way that Jesus shows us on showing love by serving, another thing that he teaches us is that no one is off limits. This is really hard. I'll just tell you that. Nobody is excluded from this. What I want you to do, I don't want you to get too distracted by this. I want you to think of the most recent conflict that you've had. Who is that person that you had conflict with? Maybe it was the drive over here. Maybe it was this week. Who's the, what is the most recent conflict that you had? What happened? Get that name of that person in your brain, okay? Everybody got a name in their brain? 
Okay, don't dwell on it too long. Don't start planning revenge, okay? But if you're like me, it probably didn't take you very long to come up with a name. You start thinking about, okay, who is the person I've had conflict with? You could probably think of a fight or a disagreement or an argument. And that, yeah, it's just kind of a reality of life. There's conflict. There's disagreements. We, we, we get into arguments with one another. We get upset. I mean, that's kind of just this unfortunate thing that happens. But oftentimes when this happens, when, when we get into some you know, disagreement with another person or in conflict, a lot of times what we'll do as a result of that is we'll, we might not label the list this way, but we'll kind of put them on this, I will not serve you list. I will not help you. If you need help, forget it. I'm not, it's not coming from me because we're upset with each other right now. So you're now excluded. And a lot of times we'll do this to the person or the people that we're closest to. My wife and I, um, we joke that uh, we didn't have the smoothest dating relationship. It's not really a joke because it was true. Uh, but what happened was we dated, and then we broke up, and then we dated, and then we broke up. And she thinks there was another time that we dated and broke up, but I can't remember. And so eventually we dated, and then we got married. And one of those times where we dated and then we broke up, I, I didn't do the breaking up. She broke up with me, and um, I was mad. I was mad because I really wanted to be in a relationship with her, but she didn't want to be in a relationship with me. So I was mad at her, like, what is, come on, like, this is what I want, like, we can make this work. And so I'm hanging out with some friends, and I'm kind of mad at her, and she walks into the room unexpectedly. And when she walks into the room, I just stood up without saying anything, and I just walked right out of the room. I will not be in your presence right now. I am mad at you. <laughs> and that sounds really dumb because I really wanted to be in a relationship with her. But I was mad, you know, because I, I didn't get my way. I didn't get what I wanted. And I would like to say that, you know, uh, you know, obviously that's very childish of me, and I would like to say that I've grown out of that. But the reality is, is sometimes the person that I say the, that I love the most, I'll add to my I will not serve list. And I bet that in your own life, you can think of someone or imagine someone who you've done this to, somebody who is made you upset. Maybe, maybe it is a serious injustice that they've committed. Maybe it's a deep wrong and offense. But a lot of times, if we're honest about it, the people that make it on this, I will not serve you, I will not help you list, sometimes we can't even remember why they're on the list to begin with. We just know that they're on the list. And we'll take these people that we say we love the most and are the closest to us and add this to this, oh, I'm not going to help you in this situation. List. I want you to look at what happens at the dinner and how Jesus handles it. Verse 2, I'm going to read it again. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Judas, the one who betrays Jesus, is sitting at the table, and he's going to get his feet washed by Jesus. Jesus knows what Judas is up to. Jesus knows that earlier Judas had gone to the high priest and asked the question, hey, how much will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? And he knows that he exchanged Jesus for about $20,000 in today's money. Jesus knows that later that evening, Judas is going to come to him in the garden, and he's going to betray him with a kiss on the cheek, a sign of friendship, a sign of closeness. So Judas, the guy who betrays Jesus, is sitting there at the table acting like his friend. The whole time, he's looking for an opportunity to stab him in the back, and Jesus is completely aware of what Judas is up to. Add to this, the name Judas in this period of time, incredibly common name, very popular name. 
The name Judas, actually, it's a reference back to the Hebrew Judah, which is a significant tribe in Israel's history from where the king is going to come from. And so what families would do is, my son, his name is Cohen. The name means thunder or bold. Both good names for a little boy, right? It's thunder or bold. You know, I want that for my son. Well, families would do that for their kids in this period of time. They would choose a name for their children that they would hope the, ch- the child would embody. So they would choose this name Judas, and they would hope that this kid will grow up and he'll be, he'll be kingly. He'll be, he'll be faithful. He'll be significant. He'll impact other people. It was a strong name. It was a good name. There's other people in the Bible with the name Judas. There's another disciple named Judas. Actually, the, the New Testament book of Jude it's written by a guy named Judas. We've just changed it to Jude so there's no confusion between him and the guy who betrays Jesus. This guy, he ruins that name. Very common name. I, I went online just to see how many people have this name, Judas. How many people are given this name? There's websites that'll tell you this stuff. So I type it in, you know, thinking it'll give me a number. It doesn't give me a number. All it says is Judas is a very rare first name. That's all it says. So I want to see, okay, well, what about other first names? So I typed in some other names. John, one of the disciples. Number two, most common name given to boys. Matthew, number 25. Andrew, number 35. Peter, number 43. Because of this guy sitting at the table with Jesus, the name Judas goes from very common, very popular, good, strong name to very uncommon. Nobody has this name anymore. What you realize is sitting at the table is the guy in history who no one wants to be named after. And still, what does Jesus do? He serves him. He does the job that only a servant would do. Jesus completely aware of what Judas is going to do. It's not like he's he's helpless and naive and ignorant to the fact. No, he is completely aware. Talk about self-control and strength. I mean, sometimes, you know, because love is kind of this feeling thing, sometimes it's like, you know, love, sometimes, you know, it's just like roses and flowers, and we don't think about the strong part of love. But Jesus, in showing love and serving, Jesus shows that, talk about self-control. The ability to choose to do what is right, even when your betrayer, who's acting like your friend, is sitting right next to you, and you're completely aware of it. The point is, no one's off-limits. There should not be a, I will not serve, I will not help list. There is no list in Jesus' book. Another thing that we learn about love when it comes to serving is nothing is below you. When it comes to serving other people, there's nothing that's below us. One thing that's interesting to me in this story that we find about Jesus with the disciples is shortly after this, he washes their feet and Actually, each one of the the Gospels, the four biographies, in some way have a record of this event. And Luke records something that happens, and he records this disagreement between the disciples that takes place. It says this, Luke 22. says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, this happened shortly after Jesus has washed their feet. So they've just had the person who they claim to be God. They acknowledge him as God. He's come to save the people from their sins. He's sitting at the table with them. He does this shocking task of a servant and washes their feet. They've experienced his love meeting practical needs. They, you know, they're not aware of who Judas is at the time, but they've got this example in front of them. And shortly after that, they get into this argument of who's more important. Well, I'm more important than you. No, I'm more important than you. 
And I, I want to look at the disciples, and I want to be, these guys, man, these guys, they're so petty, and they're so immature, and how could you have God serve you in that way, and then turn around the next moment and be arguing about who's greater? I want to do that, but then if I consider my own life, the reality is, is my attitude and my actions actually sometimes reflects what they're doing. Sometimes there's this thing that happens, and it's almost like this who's greater game that we'll play. It's kind of this like, well, who's more important, or whose contribution is more valuable, or, or whose opinion's more significant, and we'll kind of start to get into this you know, game of comparison in our mind, and because we're the one controlling the game, it's pretty easy for us to end up on top and conclude that, well, we were more significant, or we, more, we, we are more important, or our contribution was you know, more valuable. You know, so for me, sometimes it'll happen is, you know, I'll come home from work and it's been, you know, a long day and I've gotten a lot done at the office and maybe I'm working on some different stuff, some different um, things I'm working through and I'll get home and, you know, I'm tired, you know, it'll, it'll wear me out sometimes. So I'll get home and I'm, I'm worn out and honestly, all I want to do is I want to sit on the couch and I want to put my feet up and I want to turn on the TV and, you know, I just kind of want to, I just want to decompress. I just want to relax because, you know, I'm tired and I need this time. But there's a good chance somebody else in the house is tired too. Because my wife's been chasing around this 18-month-old that doesn't really follow instructions yet, and we got this three-year-old that she's flying around all over the place, and my wife's involved in other activities too, and so there's a good chance that I'm going to come home and I'm tired, but there's somebody else who's going to be tired too. It's my wife. Now, I'd like to say that you know my just natural approach is to walk into the house and say, say, Allie, I, I recognize your contribution, and I greatly value it. I think what you're doing is invaluable, and I greatly appreciate it, and how can I help in this situation? How can I serve? And I'd like to say that that's kind of the, the normal approach, but a lot of times what happens is I'll walk in and I'm like, oh, she's, you know, I was hoping you know, it would have been a great day and everything would have been easy and everybody would have taken their naps and then I could go and take my nap too now. You know? But instead, you know, it's like there's stuff that needs to be done and you know, I need to help in some different way. And so what, then what I'm doing is in my brain, I'm sitting there and I'm, kind of, I'm playing this who's greater game. Who's, whose contribution was more significant? Who's more important in the given situation? And we would never say this out loud. I mean, we're not going to walk in and say, well, I'm greater, and because I'm greater, I don't have to do that because that's below me. I mean, we're not dumb enough to say that. But we'll communicate that in different ways. I mean, some of us maybe have a look. I, I have a look. Sometimes I, you know, I'll do the little, I'll whip the neck and give a little look. You know, it's like almost like if I stare long enough, they'll get the idea that I'm more important, and because I'm more important, I shouldn't have to do that. We all have our way of communicating it. But I want you to see what Jesus says after he washes their feet. It says this, John 13, verse 12, it says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, he returned to his place, he says this, he says, Do you understand what I've done for you? I don't, I don't think they understood because they did get into this argument about who's greater. He asked them, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. So he's saying, you verbalize that I am greater than you. You call me teacher and Lord. You've, you're the ones that, you're, you, you claim that you believe that I'm God. And you're right. I actually am. You're right with this conclusion. And he goes on. He says, now that I, your Lord and your teacher, the one who's greater, the only one that could actually make that claim, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Should. That should word. It's like an obligation. If you should do something... I mean, it would be one thing if he said, now that I, your Lord and your teacher, the one that's greater, have washed your feet, you know, it, it might be a good idea to wash others' feet. 
If you feel like it, wash others' feet. If you're in the mood to do it, wash others' feet. You know, if it's convenient, wash others' feet. No, he says, if you should, you should wash another's feet. He goes on, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The point Jesus is making is he is the only one in the room that could even play this game of who's greater. The rest of the guys, there's no, they can't even do this. They're all, they're all created. They're all dependent. Jesus is the one who's God. He's the only one that can make this claim. But what's the point that he's making? He's saying, hey, it's not about who's greater. It's about love. And love serves. And love meets practical needs. And love doesn't exclude anybody and say, well, I'm not going to serve them because of what they've done. And love doesn't say, oh, well, this is the level I'll go to, but I won't do anything below that because that's beneath me. Love does the job that no, all of the disciples knew the job needed to be done. And they're all sitting there going, I'm not going to do it. I sure hope somebody else volunteers because it needs to be done, but I'm sure not going to be the one that does it. And then who does it? The greatest one in the room does it. What's the point? There's nothing that's beneath us. When it comes to love, and when it comes to living out love by serving like Jesus did, again, it's, it's, there's no level, there's no comparison, there's no you know, value, one's more important than another. The reality is, hey, Jesus did the job that nobody else wanted to do, and he did this to give us an example, to teach us that when it comes to love and serving, there is no task or no job that's beneath us. So in review, Jesus' message is a message of love. And one of the ways that he showed this is he showed that you love other people by serving them. You meet their needs, you don't exclude people from your list, and you realize that there's no job that's below you. There's nothing that's, that's off limits when it comes to something that you can do to serve some other person. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you give us such a clear record of what it means to love. And Jesus, I thank you that when it comes to your actions, that you paint a perfect picture of love in the different situations that you encountered and experienced, and you help us know what it means to love. And I thank you for the fact that you loved us so much that you came and you gave your life for us so that we could be forgiven. And then you continue to love us by meeting our needs and care for us and plan ahead, and you have, have a future in store for us a blessed future, a future full of inheritance. So I thank you for the fact that you've done that. I pray that in realization of what you have done and the example that you've laid before us, that we would take what you've given us and we would turn to the people around us who we say we love and we would show it by serving. And we would meet the needs and we wouldn't exclude anybody and there would be no job that is below us or we think that we're greater than. So, Father, I pray that in humility we'll turn and we'll love and we'll serve. In Jesus' name, amen.